Well, you're right. A lot of people here are concerned about it, and rightfully so. And it's not just, I believe, the conservation community, but also the commercial fishing industry and the aquaculture community, businesses, as well as the tourism industry along the South Australian coast there. This is a very important decision for Australia. I would consider this a high-risk project. This is not like the other shallow water drilling that's gone on around uh, the Australian coast. This is extremely deep ocean water. It's greater than two kilometers to the seabed and then another three kilometers down beneath the seabed to the reservoir. Um, So there's a lot of uncertainties involved in the pressure and temperature. Uh, A blowout is entirely possible, and the industry knows that. The government knows that, and I think all Australians know that. Um, So there's a risk of a catastrophic discharge uh, of millions of barrels of oil if they make a mistake. There's 101 different ways that these things can fail. And I would just also say that Equinor itself has had several near-catastrophic failures in its operations offshore uh, off of Norway. Um, and so that they know that there's a real risk of a large, discharge, a large oil spill from their exploratory project. And, uh, and they also know that it would be very difficult to respond to. The blowout preventer on the wellhead may fail. To get a capping stack put onto that to try to stop it, stop the blowout, it would be very difficult. It would take, you know, two weeks to a month or longer, even if if it was possible. And drilling a relief well would take several months, likely. So, and plus oil spill response and cleanup is kind of a mythology, and I think they realize that as well. So, the 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 risk of this project is uh, significant. Now, you yourself have uh, considerable experience, uh, particularly uh, looking at uh, places such as the, the Niger Delta, Nigeria's Niger Delta, uh, looking at oil spills there and, and elsewhere. And, and, and you mentioned there that, you know, this sort of myth of, of cleanup and so forth. Can you, can you go and uh, elaborate more on that in terms of, you know, a lot of oil companies uh, have put, a, I guess, a lot of money and a lot of effort into this idea that they can uh, manage oil spills. But, you know, is this just untrue? It's one of the great unspoken truths within the oil industry (laughs) that oil spill response, particularly to a large offshore marine oil spill, is simply impossible. And no matter how Herculean the effort will be and how many billions of dollars are put into it, seldom is more than 10% of what came out actually recovered. A good example is the largest oil spill response in history, which was the BP Deepwater Horizon response, in which BP paid 14 billion U.S. dollars. 48,000 people were employed, thousands of vessels and aircraft, and and hundreds of skimmers and hundreds of miles of boom and such. And yet, they only actually recovered about three percent of what actually came out of the the failed wellhead. So. Uh, some of it dispersed naturally, some of it degraded on its own, some of it evaporated, and uh, some of it they chemically dispersed, but that causes its own problems. So people in the oil spill response community fully understand that the notion of actually physically recovering oil that spilled uh, offshore is um, is somewhat of a fantasy. And I think I think the you know, Equinor knows that. I think that, uh, certainly the government of Australia knows that. And every single major oil spill that I've been on over the last several decades, that has been the truth. 
Now, Greenpeace have obtained this uh, leaked draft environmental plan uh, that is uh, the, the oil pollution emergency plan that has indicated that if an oil spill happened in the Great Australian Bright, it, it could reach as far east as uh, Port Macquarie's beaches and also uh, two-thirds of the way up the uh, New South Wales coast. Uh, but I guess looking at this uh, this project more generally, how you've said that there's been a lot of uh, opposition from uh, you know the commercial fishing industry and then of course uh, groups such as Greenpeace here in Australia. But uh, you know how detailed has the actual community consultation been? And you know I guess coming from uh, the perspective of you know being someone from Alaska and then and you, you I guess have a a sort of unique position that you can almost sort of objectively look at our uh, our processes here in Australia. Uh, what do you think the level of community consultation has been around this? And do you think that the local community is actually being listened to by uh, both the state and federal government in considering this proposal? Well, you know, the the extent of community consultation I'm somewhat unfamiliar with. I understand there were some consultations done when BP was proposing the project in 2016, um, and I will credit the government of Australia, NAPSIMA, the, the federal regulatory agency, in declining two of BP's proposed uh, plans for developing this, this uh, well, this exploratory well. And that, that gives me great faith in the governmental process here that they are indeed looking at this in detail in the interest of the people. I hope that continues. And, you know, and then BP read the tea leaves, they did the math and looked at the potential risk of this versus the small or nominal potential benefit, and they withdrew uh, from the project. I suspect Equinor it should, should and likely will follow BP's lead here and simply do the math, look at the risks versus potential rewards, and uh, withdraw from the project, but then it will be up to the government of Australia listening to its populace um, to perhaps consider permanent protection of the Great Australian Bight. This is an extraordinary marine ecosystem, and I'm not telling anybody uh, in Australia that because I've actually never seen it, but all the research that I've looked at to develop this report, uh, this is one of the most precious marine systems uh, in the world. And those other areas which, which are so productive and vulnerable uh, throughout the world have been protected permanently from offshore drilling, or many of the places has. So um, it would be something for the government to consider uh, beyond the Equinor proposal. Certainly. And just finally, uh, Rick, you've been uh, at this for a very long time. You've been a marine conservation professor, uh, you know, since I'm reading here since the 80s, and you've obviously been heavily involved in these issues uh, for a long time. It, it, it seems, I mean, I guess, considering everything that's happening in the world now and, and the potential of catastrophic climate change becoming more and more real as, uh, as time goes on, it seems really absurd that we're even considering such a project especially, I guess, in a, in a country like Australia that has uh, such access to uh, potential renewable energies. I mean, I, I guess looking at it from a, a sort of more personal perspective, does it not, I guess, frustrate you that we're still even having this, uh, this conversation or still have to, uh, in, in one, way, one way or another, uh, potentially you know, protest this, this kind of development when uh, we're living in the world we're living in, and particularly uh, given the, you know, the potential effects of uh, catastrophic climate change? Absolutely. I mean, that is the big picture 
uh, question that everybody needs to be asking here on these kinds of projects. Certainly, we need to start leaving. Everybody understands this in the scientific community. Fossil carbon in the ground, um, say half of it that, w- that we have identified in reservoirs, in order to have a chance of stabilizing global climate. We should adopt that as a global priority. Um, and one of the easiest places to start backing away from this fossil carbon in, in the Earth's crust is the deep ocean. Another place is the Arctic Ocean. And uh, we are pushing that uh, agenda as well, scientifically. Um, but certainly, the, the last place in the world we want to be expanding into now are these extraordinary productive offshore deep water uh, ocean ecosystems with oil drilling when we know we've, we need to start you know, looking at alternatives. And, and Australia has so many economic and energy alternatives to doing this sort of thing offshore, and that's, you know, low-carbon alternative energy onshore, uh, the sustainable multi-billion dollar annual industries of the Great Australian Bight that would put it, be put at jeopardy by this thing, and that's the tourism, commercial fishing, and aquaculture industry. So you've got a lot of alternatives. If you had no alternatives, it would be a different consideration, the, the Equinor proposal, but you have so many I would simply counsel you to think long and hard about why take the risk. You know, it's bet, betting the house and rolling the dice that things will work out. They may not, and why do that? 